Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Diane Brockmeyer. She is the president and CEO of the nonprofit organization Mid-American Transplant, which facilitates organ and tissue donation and now serves 84 counties covering eastern Missouri, southern Illinois, and northeast Arkansas. Hi, Diane. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Thank you for asking me. Well, I will say, so you're one of our TEDx Gateway Arch speakers. Correct. Hooray. But... The first night when we had an orientation was the first night that I met all the speakers and you stood up and what you said really took me back. Like I was like, whoa, what an interesting way to introduce yourself. And I don't know if you remember, do you remember? I remember a bit of it, yes. Can you say it or should I try to say it? I don't know if I'll be as eloquent and graceful as you were in saying it. I'm certain you would be, but I think I was making the point about to give folks a context of our work mm-hmm. that our staff works every day at this remarkable intersection of loss and life. Yes. Yes. And th- and I was like, whoa. It made me it, it made my I mean my skin kind of went tingly. I thought, wow, what an interesting thought because and you went on, I'm gonna to talk about how at this at that place where the intersection is, there's there's somebody losing a loved one and there's somebody whose loved one now has got hope. Correct. And I can't, It's a, that's an interesting place to be. It's a remarkable place to work uh, because you see people in the midst of almost opposite, like polar opposites in emotion, you know, a devastating loss of a family member and then someone celebrating the chance that their loved one has a second chance at life. Right. That they have the opportunity to perhaps, you know, be normal, have a normal life, get back to what we would all define as normalness. Right. And that's an unusual thing for some of those people that have been gravely ill for so long. And I I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure that it takes a lot of training and a lot of compassion to be the person that's going to the, the, those that are about to lose someone and say, we could use this, you know? It's a job that is only really made for a special type of person. They have to have that ability to immediately connect with people, uh, to really be able to empathize and to meet them at the spot in their grief journey that they are. Uh, But then they have to be, you know, compassionate, able to answer their questions, able to make sure that they get the information that they need. Folks that are experiencing a loss like that in the hospital have really lost all control. Right. And it gives them some ability to have some control over the the rest of that individual's legacy from that point forward. And so those folks are remarkable, remarkable people. So they come from all walks of life. We have nurses, we have social workers, we have folks that have been uh, past police officers. So it's it's an interesting mix of professional skills, but their personal attributes is what brings them all together. Exactly. That makes sense. And so some people like up front are, are, have, you know, the, have signed the thing saying the driver's I license. am right, right, you know, but, but is it far too few or is it pretty good? How many people do that? I mean, it's like, wow, a lot of people do this or is it something that people don't do? I think it's 
not enough. I mean, okay. I guess that's the biggest answer is while we have made great progress and great strides in getting people to sign up on the registry. Um, in fact, we even went through an exercise as an organization. We ran three license offices and we did that in an attempt to try to make sure people were well informed when right. they were making that decision and they really understood. Uh, but only about 60 or 70 percent of the total population is signed up. But in the population of patients we work with, we only see it about 50% of the time. Okay. Um, so we're always working to try to get more people on the registry. If your family's already had that conversation with you ahead of time when they were living, it certainly gives them that perspective to know that they are carrying out their loved one's wishes. So tell me this, the... Um, when they sign, the, what does that mean when, when you sign the driver's license? You, what does that mean when you do that? When you've signed your driver's license, it is a legally binding document in the state of Missouri. And it says, I have made this decision as my first person, as me, mm -hmm. that I'm authorizing donation to proceed. Okay. okay. So what happens in reality is in the throes of a hospital loss, for example, um, our staff would say to the family, I'm sure you were aware that your husband, your brother, your son had signed up on the registry. And this is where he signed up. And this is what date he signed up because we can access the state documents to actually show them that. Okay. Many families are aware of it because it's a conversation that they've had. Right. But many's aren't, many families aren't. So it really affords them that opportunity to know, oh my gracious, this is really something he wanted, he or she wanted to do. And they find comfort often in knowing that they can be a part of kind of that last component of the legacy that that individual will leave. Got you. And and it have I mean if a family member says no way, can you not do it? Or is it like, well I mean, or does that just create issues, legal issues? <laughs> I mean, you don't have yes. a lot of time here, right? No, you, I mean it's you're, not like you're you battling have a, lot a of time, time, right? Yeah. So um it does create issues for sure. It's always smoother if the family understands and the family wants to proceed with the loved one's wishes. Um it makes it complicated if we have to unravel that. And occasionally families will say, well, he didn't realize what he was signing or he didn't understand what it meant. And we're certainly respectful of that. Sure. Um, it's one of those scenarios that um, we partner with the hospitals in our area. And if they are willing to proceed, you know, we do re-education. We really try to talk to them from the perspective of, but your loved one has already made this decision, right? right? Yeah, this is their wish. Their wish. You really don't have to change that or overthink think that or look at that they've already chosen so your opportunity is to honor it and I think that what we found is that if we can continue to work with families the majority of the time those few half a dozen a year we can actually work with and they finally understand and agree yeah, yeah. on occasion if they absolutely did not and they are adamant uh, we um have walked away. And in the event that while it's not legally, we're backed to proceed, uh, but from a compassion perspective, it's really hard to put a family at that moment in their life through any more agony. Right. So we graciously Well, walk and away. at that moment, you, I mean, they may not be thinking. They're not fully thinking yeah, either, right? They're not thinking clearly too. So I mean, what do they you say know. about all of us when we're in crisis? You hear about 10% and see about 10%. I mean, you get this real tunnel-visioned, you know, 
thing going on in your mind. And so when you think about asking people to make those kinds of decisions and that kind of mindset, it's a real challenge. And, so. and it may just be, I can't, I can't make this right. I mean, I right. can't even, I can't, think, I can't, I can't even go, go there. there. Yeah, right. I totally, I totally see that. I can see where that would be the case. And you know, sometimes too, in the case of like a parent, for example, I mean, that whole conversation, um, they are living every parent's worst nightmare. Uh, and so, you know, as a parent, I mean, it, it's a, it's just more than a, a loved one can really fathom, you right. know. And so, I think that knowing that you see, you, you, we can see, even those of us that work in the field every day can see why it's troublesome for folks, yeah. especially if they don't know you know, what their loved one wants. Right. Well, yeah. And in the case of a child, the child isn't signing a driver's license. Correct. And mm-hmm. so it really is up to the parent. But, and in the middle of that, yeah. Right. Wow. So amazingly compassionate people. Amazing people. I love that. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Diane Brockmeyer. We are back with Diane Brockmeyer. So I have another interesting question. Um, when a person signs this, and now now there's a need. So you're like, this person has a kidney or what have you that we can use for this person. When that, that person has signed it, does it mean we may take everything or just parts? Unless there's a restriction that's specified, the gifts are usually for anything that can be used. Okay. For transplant. Often families will also give consent for like research or medical education, like the study of diabetes sometimes is one thing that families are particularly interested in. But typically it's more of a global consent. Um, And then each of the organs are evaluated for their function. Okay. And because you want to really ensure for those patients on that wait list that you are giving them certainly a better organ than what they exactly. have today. Right. right, right, right. That makes sense. Wow. So so it really is in that moment what's going to happen. Right. You know, as soon as the families have either consented or have decided to follow through on the first person authorization and the patient's been pronounced legally dead, you know, mm-hmm. by a physician in the state, um, then at that point we would run a computer-generated list um, and then match, you know, by blood type and by size, each organ that, that has been determined to be suitable for transplant. Wow, interesting. So, and the list is colorblind. I mean, basically know um, a, f- a first initial, last name, and an identifier, a medical identifier. And that's all the information that my staff has when they're making these allocation decisions. And so, making the calls. I think it's interesting that, you know, so we always think of things like, organs right. like the, in the, the kidney that that kind of right. thing mm-hmm. but a f- um, recently a friend of mine had passed away and her daughter they they hurt the her skin yes matched right someone skin and, is used for i'm sorry i didn't know but, but i had never heard of my, that i mean i know skin that. is an organ but i just didn't think of Wow, that's interesting skin. Right. I mean, they use it for a couple of different things. The most obvious one in some cases, it's used as like a living dressing for burn patients. Oh, It's still one of the ideal 
has the ideal properties to help heal burns, right? But one of the other uses that's really come to the forefront more recently is the skin can be processed or meshed and used a lot in post-mastectomy work, in big wound care closures. So there's an amazing number of different types of indications to use skin for healing. Mm Really? Interesting. It's like the best Band-Aid. Oh my gosh, I would have never thought of that. That's so what are some other things we just don't know? Like that would we would not think about that when you say to when you tell someone it's fascinating, they're like, Really? <laughs> I never thought of that. You know, a lot of people have heard of cornea donation. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we think about I mean imagine your life without sight. And some of these people, and they're not all old people either. Some of these younger people haven't really seen clearly their entire life, perhaps. So imagine taking off this foggy window pane from your eye and giving you something that's clear. We've heard patients talk about, oh my goodness, I've seen my children's faces for the first time really clearly. I mean, so those types of stories, you know, are really compelling and encourage our staff to continue to do their work. Right. Tendon repair for athletes, lots of tendon surgeries. So tendons can be donated from the donor. Bone is used in a lot of big cancer operations, like an entire femur can be replaced one patient to the next. You're kidding me. No, matched up by x-ray. Wow. So on the tendon thing, would that be like the person is hanging out wherever, and then then like, hey, we found the tendon for you. Like, you know, they're not in the hospital at the no, time, right? They're, they're not just- in the hospital, and because of the way that tissue donation happens, which occurs far more frequently than organ donation, um, those individuals can almost schedule their surgeries because you know that that um, tissue will always be there for that next surgical case. Wow, that's fascinating. It's a remarkable, it's a, our body is a remarkable system. It's a remarkable machine. And uh, there's no better replacement, certainly at this point, um, than those organs and tissues that are gifted from another individual, from another human. Has there been any, I mean, I, I, okay, I'm thinking of the mouse with the ear on it, yeah. right? We've <laughs> yes. all seen it, right? Yes. You know, I've seen that, you know, is, has there been, you know, where, where are we with, creating our own organs you know, and such. People talk about that. They talk about 3D printing. You know, right. they're using that a lot for surgical application today. Uh, people talk about those cells like the ear on the mouse. They've talked about actually genetically modifying pigs so that the pig organs could be transplanted into humans. Um, the Information is that it's still several years out. When I started in this business 31 years ago this month, um, we believed at that point in time that possibly baboon transplants would take the place of human heart transplants. I think I remember Remember, hearing that. Yeah. And here we are 31 years later and that it's still that we as humans still have the best gifts, right? So, but they are forecasting that science has improved, you know, those things change daily, um, that within five to 20 years, we'll see some of those things come to be. Really? We might be there. We could be. Interesting. So, because you think about like, they always talk about how close your DNA, like, your DNA is actually really close to a banana. Right. You know? and you're like, really? Okay, but the banana is so different than me. But, um, but you know, I think, I mean, you can kind of feel it with a with a baboon or a, or a, a pig. You know, you're right. like, oh, I can see how that might that work. Might but work. it's interesting that it just still isn't quite there. Quite there, right. You know, and the biggest thing is trying to make sure that the organs from the baboon or the pig, for example, have been this genetic engineering so that the pigs, your body, 
body doesn't recognize it as a pig heart, right? Right. Your body would recognize it as your heart. So you wouldn't reject it. So that's the biggest piece now is dealing with A, rejection, yeah. and B, that long-term function, you know, of, you know, a, a mechanically engineered organ. Because it's it's a chance. I mean, you're really, it's a, you put this in there and then it's like, will it work? Work, exactly. I mean, it's it's really a journey, this whole thing. It's a, an incredible journey. And some of these people are on the wait list for several years, oh. you know, with mechanical assist devices or tethered to dialysis. And so, you know, they are waiting on oxygen, you know, for years. So their life, you really want to make sure you're giving them the healthiest chance possible to move forward. Right, right. right. Oh my gosh. It's so... Um, I was thinking of TV shows. Yes. <laughs> yes. That stands the hair up okay, on my right? neck. Okay, <laughs> right? I mean, and they always depict these things, right. you know, where it's like the waiting and they're waiting for this perfect and then there's the, there's all the drama around it. And, right. You know, right. Like Grey's Anatomy. There's all this drama. Say, Grey's right? Anatomy. Well, that's like the perfect drama medical oh, yeah. show, right? Right. I mean... Is that how this goes down every time? Uh, no. uh, I have not seen that happen. So it's interesting. The process is far more scientific. It's far more regulated. You right. know, it's not like, oh, I think that person in the ICU bed four needs a heart. Let me run down to the ER and shop around. That's right. not the right. way the system or, or works at all. Or hop on the helicopter with and my, with my cooler. cooler. Now, that part's realistic. Heart. Oh, is it really? Right. It really is. Oh, so, interesting. Um, you know, I think that one of the symbols a lot of us associate with organ donation is the cooler. The cooler, right? the yeah. The cooler. You do. And we still use those. On all the scientific advances, we still use ice, you know, the organ is bagged, triple bagged in a cooler. That's still the best really? transport. Really? I'll be right? darned. Isn't that something? Oh, my yeah. gosh. Because you, you do. I mean, the, I, whenever I think about those shows, there's somebody, oh, somebody running around with the cooler. Right. And the cooler's got to get to the certain place at a certain, certain time. time. And there's actually some fact in that right. is that there's limited time for the organ to get reimplanted. So, you know, one of the things we want to make sure we do is everything we can to minimize the time that organ sits in the cooler. Right. Because obviously it's in the best environment when it's back in the recipient. So, yeah. it sounds is I mean, is there a lot of stress? Uh I would certainly say there's some stress. I mean, you're fighting a clock. Right. It's an emotionally charged situation. Right. Um, certainly on our staff's end, the transplant surgeon's end, you know, they have a connection with their patient, with their waiting recipient. Our staff's dealing with a grieving donor family. Right. So it's a really emotionally charged situation that requires a lot of coordination. And so it's like trying to create science out of chaos. Right. So knowing that there are procedures and policies and regulations help keep some of those things uh, a little more process oriented yes. and a little more normal right, if you want to call right. it that. Well, that right. makes sense. You'd have to have you processes. Have to have, right. there, you'd mm -hmm. have to or right. else it would, it just, would be chaos. It would be chaos. Right. Wow, that's so interesting. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome. We're going to take another break and we will be right back with Diane Brockmeyer. We are back with Diane Brockmeyer. Okay, I th there is a story. 
that I read several, it was several years ago, and it was so fascinating to me. And it was a woman who had received, I don't even know what organ she had received. And somehow or another, she knew the family. Like there was a connection where she knew the family it came from. And the, she went back to the, fam, the, the family, like let her, you know, hey, come over. And she'd gotten the, the organ from a 13-year-old little boy. And the first question she asked the family was, did he like Cheetos and <gasps> rap music? Because apparently, after she received the organ, she started craving Cheetos and listening to rap music. And the family was like, oh my gosh, yes. So that there's been a lot of research around how our how we uh, our genes, DNA, what have you, hold memory. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it is that like for real? We hear that. I've heard that reported. I don't have the science to back that up, but it is an amazing thing when you like the story like that, right? The Cheetos and the rap music, probably not typically in her music interest, Not right? even close. She was like, why am I all of a sudden into this? Right. So we have heard people talk about uh, having a fondness for things or an affinity to like certain foods or certain music or traveling if they never wanted to travel. So we have heard those things. I've really never had an appreciation for what really drives all of that behind it. But it is, it's one of those kind of mysteries yeah. wrapped up in all of it, right? It is fascinating. Right. I mean, you have to wonder because, you know, there's, so I, I don't, there's certain people out there that, you know, believe that there are past lives. Whether that's true, I actually don't know, but I have to wonder if past lives are somebody, great, great, great grandpa's DNA or something, that that's that's what you're like. You have a hold of memory of that. Of somehow. that, it, that could be. It's so it's, fascinating. It is interesting. We've had cases in the past where um, I've heard the the transplants teams talk about, especially little boys. They wanted to make sure they weren't going to get a little girl's heart, you know, because oh. then they wouldn't be, you know, rough and tough and all those kinds of things. Yeah, because um, they don't want to be a sissy. But uh, I've never heard that truly report, <laughs> reported. <laughs> and it's always interesting, though the questions that people ask, but your family's knew had some distant connection, right? It's even remarkable when they're complete strangers and you hear about those things. Wow. So yeah. It's no pretty remarkable. Kidding. Yeah. Uh, I'm telling you, there could be a book in this. Um, there probably is a book and I don't know. There about probably it. are a couple. <laughs> um, okay. Is there, is there any organ that people do not like to donate? Like, is there, is this like, Oh, people don't like to donate that for whatever reason. Um, it's not very common. So most of the time, families are willing to ma- to make the most of their loved one's life, okay. right? Uh, on occasion, we've had people say, uh, well, you can't have the heart because that's where their soul lives, right? Okay. And we've had people say on occasion, well, you can't take their eyes because that's how I see into their soul. They've looked right. at me with those eyes. Right. So on rare, rare occasion, we'll hear it for eyes and heart, but it's pretty, I mean, it's very, very uncommon anymore. My, my dad has a thing about, he was, my dad was oh. like, my dad's like, I, I'll donate anything except my except eyes. my eyes, yeah. I want to see heaven when I get there, you know, oh. but I think it's more of a joke, but yeah, I, right. was, I thought that was, I was just wondering if there was one like, gosh, nobody will donate this. No, you know, thank goodness yeah. for the people that are waiting. Right? No right? kidding. No kidding. You know, Seventeen hundred people wait in St. Louis. That's how many we have on the list today. Seventeen hundred, really. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of people. Yeah. And so no matter how hard we work, you know, to try to make every donation happen, um, it's like the the list outstrips what's available. I bet. Right? Oh gosh. And then. My my next my next question is psychologically speaking. Yes. 
I mean, how does this affect someone? The the person that receives the the organ, the mm-hmm. transplant, what have you. How is there also a component of you know where we have to go in and take care of their mind, their their thought process, their feelings, their emotions around it all. You know, one of the things we've heard expressed over the years is something we've called recipient guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard it expressed from teenagers up through, you know, 70-year-olds. And it's like, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful I've had my chance at a good life, right, to get to continue to live a good life. Um, But I realize if I stop and think about it, that my gift is because someone's life was lost. I can I can it's understand hard. that. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I've heard them talk about I never got to meet my donor. I never got to really have a sense of who they were, but I'm forever thankful, you know, that they did that. But no, that's a real phenomenon. I think um, the transplant centers work a lot with patients to try to get them through that. You know, one of the things we encourage them to do is to write a thank you note to the donor. Oh. So because the donor families want to know in some small way that the gift is being used well and appreciated. But so. are they, can, can the, you know the donor family if the donor, like is there another part where the donor family is like, we would be happy to talk to them or? Yes, we certainly, oh, cool. we can. Uh, and a lot of people don't want to meet. It's also pretty rare. That's another television spoof, you know, that they're always kind of running into each other. Yeah. Um, it will happen with us a few times a year, but not regularly. Uh, but we have, Oh, I'm probably 20% of the families write back and forth. And out of that, probably half of them choose to meet at some point. It may be months. It may be years. But huh. yeah. I think I would be one of the people that would be willing to meet. I you think know, I, I would too. I would want to. to I know. would want to meet and say thank, thank you, you. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. I, but I can see where that would be. I mean, I can see Very, where that would be really uncomfortable for some people. Some people, right. It's not the right thing for everyone. Right. But, you know, our thought is everyone can write a thank you card. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, so, and those little things mean so much to the donor family. Um, I mean, some of the most compelling experiences I've had in my career when um, someone has a stethoscope listening or puts their ear on the recipient's chest to hear their child or their husband's heartbeat. Um, I mean, very, I mean, granted, that's a mechanical pump, right? Right, right. But, but for that loved one, you know, it was the heart that loved, it was the heart that gave, you know, so there's a lot of emotion tied to, tied to that. How so. interesting. Do you have a favorite story? I mean, is there, is there something over these many years that you've been doing this that is like the story? I think it would be hard to pick a story. You know, it's interesting. I still remember the very first case I did by myself. Really? Uh-huh. It was Christmas Eve, 1986, and I was working with a family um, in the southern part of Missouri at the time, um, and the young man um, had committed suicide, and his lovely, lovely family, and they wanted to do what they could, you know, to help someone else. So I can still remember the young man. I can still remember his dad, just like that was yesterday. Wow. And um, so you have those people. And I think what it really made me realize, I was on my own, new coordinator, relatively younger nurse, certainly far younger than I am today. Um, and it was like, oh, my goodness, these people can see past all of this and make that decision. So I've also had... Um, the experience of it touching our family. So my stepson was a tissue donor in 2001, and my daughter's um, uh, dad was a donor in 2002. So it's also come into our home. 
Um, and I think that's why we as a family are champions for this mission, uh, because you realize they were both tissue donors, but you realize the benefit you know, they get in B. And I can recall my husband making the comment about Andrew's eyes. He didn't get to travel a lot. He was a young man. He was 21. And uh, that his eyes got transplanted in Thailand. And he said, he'll get to see things he never saw. Oh my gosh, so, what a cool thought. Yeah. So those kinds of stories you hear, you know, across the years. And and probably if you ask each person that works there, they have a few of those special stories they remember and retain. So Wow. Yeah. How interesting. And so are you are you feeling ready for TEDx? <laughs> it's I know. Twenty three days from now or whatever, I know. right? Yeah. I love to, I love Elaine's countdowns. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm excited about the opportunity to talk about some of the innovations we've made to the industry, uh, which is kind of what ours is about. You know, awesome. certainly cast in the mission of the remarkable work we get to do to save lives every day. Very cool. Very cool. I want to know. I can't wait to hear about the innovations. This is going to be interesting. I'm excited for your talk. Uh, Thank you. I am too. So thank you, Diane, for being here today. I totally appreciate it. And um, I'm ready. I'm ready for TEDx. I can't wait to hear your talk. Thank you for being a speaker. I'm happy to we do greatly it. I was honored it. to be asked. We so. know the commitment. And so, and you're, you're starting to know it. So, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> living that. It's a commitment, people. So thank you so much for being a guest thank today. You. It was great to be here. And for everyone out there, please remember to subscribe to Mishmash on iTunes and you all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.